20th century Welch author and minister Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, what accounts for most of our failures in Christian living is our failure to realize what we are. It is our failure to realize what God has done to us, what has happened to us. I believe that's true. In fact, uh, the modern church, at least in much of the Western world today, is suffering from an identity crisis, which is undermining our gospel witness to the culture around us because we consistently today, and yet I think inexplicably, seem to refuse to accept what his word says about who we are. We've forgotten what, he, what he's actually done to us that makes us uniquely equipped to offer healing to this broken world. We fail to recognize whose image it is that we bear as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we neglect the power available to us to affect real change in this world, relying uh, instead, I think, on the hope that by imposing our conservative moral values on the systems of this world, we will then be able, through those systems, to bring about the changes that are needed in this world. And so we focus on government and politics and social policies and education and the use of technology and media, even entertainment, to try and influence the moral compass of our culture, which is exactly what religious people have been doing as long as there's been religion. And listen, uh, it's not that Christians shouldn't be involved in government or politics or social policies or education and technology, media and entertainment. We should be involved in all of that as long as we understand that none of that can ultimately provide the answer for what ails this world. Because look, when you, uh, when you read the Bible, particularly the New Testament after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven, what you find is that when people needed healing, God healed them through the church. When, when families needed provision for their daily needs, God provided for them through the church. When the disenfranchised needed to be cared for, God cared for them through the church. When leaders needed guidance, God gave them guidance through the church. When the lost needed to be found, God rescued them through the church. When the broken needed mending, God repaired them through the church. When the lonely needed relationship, God embraced them through the church. When the unlovable needed friendship, God loved them through the church. When the confused needed answers, God answered them through the church. And when the world needed a savior, God revealed him and continues to reveal him through the church. You understand, every single thing that this world desperately needs, God offers us through his church. That's why the consequence of 12 men of average upbringing and experience planting the church by spreading the message of the gospel like wildfire across the ancient world resulted in a third of the world's entire population professing faith in Christ today, 2,000 years after Jesus died. Because as maligned and persecuted as the early church was, they understood and embraced who they were and what God had done in them. And as a result, the culture around them, and indeed the world, was forever changed by the Spirit of God working through the church. And yet, they weren't running the government they didn't have control of a political party. 
They weren't in charge of the educational system of the day, and they were not widely accepted in popular culture. They simply understood their identity in Christ and what he'd put inside of them. And as a result, this church was an unstoppable force in the world. Yet today, it seems that when people look to the church for answers and for help and for guidance and for healing and for rescue and for power, real power, what they're increasingly finding is a church that is looking to the systems of this world to provide all of that for them, to governments and social movements and popular culture. And then we wonder why the church is bleeding membership today. Well, listen, it's because if all we are offering the world is a more morally conservative version of what they already have, then why bother? No, what people are looking for today is what they've always been looking for because although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. What people needed 2,000 years ago is exactly what they need today and it's something that cannot be found in this world outside of the church. Just to be clear, when I say the church, I'm referring to you. Because if you are indeed a believer and follower of Christ, then you have something that cannot be found anywhere else. So you're, you're getting this, right? What this world is desperately in need of and searching for today can only be found in you. It's Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, that abides inside of you. And I'm telling you, if we spent half of the energy and effort as we spend on politics and social movements and cultural issues, if we spent half of that energy and effort on simply telling people about Jesus and actually showing them what he's done in our lives, then we wouldn't have to try and influence governments and political parties and cultural movements because the church would become such an unstoppable force in this world that it would once again spread like wildfire regardless of its relationship to governments and political parties and cultural movements of the world. It's exactly what Jesus was trying to teach his followers in our story today as we continue to work our way through the gospel according to Mark, where the religious people of the day had the same mindset that so many religious people have today, that our power somehow lies in the systems of this world. And so we spend more energy and effort focused on the systems of the world than we do on the kingdom of God, because that's where we think our power lies, in having influence over these world systems. And look, I don't have to tell you because you already know how much time uh, you invest engaging in things like social media and broadcast media and in conversations and efforts to influence others relating to political movements and cultural issues and current events in contrast with the amount of time you engage in kingdom activity, namely telling people about Jesus and showing them what he's done in your life. Right? I, don't, I don't know where you are with that, but I do know based on what I see firsthand that the majority of professing believers I encounter today spend far more energy and effort focused on the systems of this world than they do on the kingdom of God. But you understand, listen, we are far better off if we have to choose. We're far better off being uninformed about politics and cultural issues and current events than we are being uninformed about the gospel because this world doesn't need more politics. It needs more Jesus.
And yet the only place that he can be found in this world is in the church, in you, and in me. You see, Christ in us is the only power in this world that can truly change the world. Now, do you understand how much responsibility that places on us? Which is why we desperately need to remember who we are and what he's done in our lives. It's why we need to once again embrace our identity as his church because that's the only way we will ever truly be able to exercise the power that the church once wielded in this world, even when it had zero political or social or cultural power. As we'll see in our story today, as Jesus is once again confronted by the people who should have known better than anyone what it meant to be God's people, and yet they'd forgotten their true identity, and consequently, they lost the only true power they ever had. And listen, I see so much of the modern church today going down this same path, panting after the power of this world instead of the power of Christ. That's why this story is such a timely reminder of who we are, who we really are, are and where our power really lies. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Mark chapter 12, and we'll begin by reading the first 12 verses. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. <clears throat> this story that Jesus is telling is the only major parable outside of chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark, which actually, uh, it implies a special significance. Otherwise, Mark wouldn't have included it, just as he didn't include most of the other parables that we find in both Matthew and Luke, which is further attested to by the prevalence of this particular uh, parable in so many other ancient writings. Just this week, I was looking it up and reading versions of this same story uh, from the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, it's in the Gospel of Thomas, the late 1st century or early 2nd century Coptic Gospel. It's in the Shepherd of Hermas, a 2nd century collection of parables and visions and mandates for the early church. It's also uh, in a, it was in a 1st century rabbinic commentary. It's probably written by Rabbi Akiva, part of the Jewish Midrash. The, uh, the point being, this parable held profound significance for the early church because in it, Jesus identifies himself as the son of the father or the son of God, whereas up until now, he's been careful to tell his followers and those he has healed not to tell anyone who he is or what he's done because the time for his true identity to be revealed had not yet come. 
that is until now. And make no mistake about it, everyone who heard this parable knew exactly what Jesus meant, as Mark points out in verse 12. The owner of the vineyard was God. Right? In fact, the word owner in verse 9 is the ancient uh, Greek word kurios, which is also translated as God as Lord. So the owner is God. The vineyard is the people of God. The servants were the prophets of old. The son was Jesus himself and the vine dressers, the ones who beat and killed the servants and the son are, of course, the Jewish religious leaders. And just to be certain they understood what Jesus was saying, he not only borrows uh, quite a bit of imagery for this parable from the prophecy in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 about the vineyard, which they would have been familiar with and understood from that parable that God was the owner of the vineyard. But in verse 10 of this parable here in Mark, Jesus also quotes Psalm 118, 22 and 23, which they would have understood was a clear reference to the Messiah. And then in verse 6 of the parable here, the son is referred to as the father's beloved son, the same description that God spoke over Jesus in his baptism in chapter 1, and again on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. In other words, Jesus is making it clear in no uncertain terms that he was in fact the Messiah, the one sent by the Father, the one who came to redeem his people, the one foretold by the prophets of old, the one who the religious leaders of Israel would reject and kill just as they rejected and killed the prophets before him. And infuriated, these Jewish leaders who were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away, and yet they wouldn't be gone for long. As we'll see in a moment, they're simply taking time to regroup until they can launch another attempt at taking Jesus down. And of course, this is a pattern that we've seen throughout the gospel story, one that Mark has reported on frequently and one that we've covered thoroughly in the previous chapters. What, what is not quite as commonly reported on, however, is the great lengths at which the Father has gone to plant and care for His vineyard, His people, as is described in verse 1. And of course, it's the only verse uh, in the parable uh, that, that has that description in it. So I think it's easy to overlook the one verse. Actually, though, it's a powerful commentary on God's great plan and purpose in the lives of His people. And again, Jesus, His audience uh, at the time would have understood it probably far more than we do today, at least at, at a casual or a cursory reading, because both the secular and rabbinic literature that we have from that time period records this widespread practice of absentee landowners who developed property for agricultural purposes and then hired tenant farmers to care for the crops and the land. In other words, the people of the day would have understood uh, what was involved in this type of farming arrangement because it was very common. And yet uniquely significant even to that practice was the development and care of a vineyard in particular because typical farmland involved an annual crop that was planted and harvested each season, whereas the vineyard was a perennial crop which required uh, an immensely greater investment in capital and manpower and planning and patience and risk and resources. Right? Uh, vines typically take five years to become productive, and yet they require constant care and fertilizing and irrigation before they ever yield any fruit. As well, planting and uh, maintaining a vineyard meant planting and maintaining a reed 
plantation on the adjacent property because that's where they got the supports for the vine. So they grew and harvested their own supports next door. And all of that was after the raw land was made suitable for a vineyard to be planted to begin with. And listen, if you've ever worked a, a piece of raw land, even just to plant a vegetable garden, you know the amount of investment involved, right? I built homes for many years, and so I understand what it takes in terms of planning and execution to take a piece of raw land and develop it into a home site, and yet this was a vineyard. It involved not only clearing the land, not only preparing the soil, but also building fencing and a wine press and a tower from which the tenant farmers could watch out for predators and thieves. And again, the planting and maintenance of a reed plantation. So you get the idea. You simply couldn't casually plant a vineyard in the first century any more than you can today. No, it took a tremendous amount of planning and resources and risk and investment and care and constant cultivation all for a tremendous purpose. One so profoundly important, in fact, that the owner was willing to offer his own son to save it from those who would otherwise steal it from him. You understand, right? This one verse says so much about God's purpose in you, his people, his vineyard. Listen, God planned your life down to the very last detail before he set the foundations of the earth. Psalm 139 says, Every single one of your days were written in his book when as yet there was none of them. Do you understand? Do you have any idea just how purposeful your life actually is? All of this, this world, all of the planning and all of the investment and all of the preparation and all of the meticulous care to bring about life on this planet and everything necessary to sustain it. Do you understand that all of that has been planned and prepared and created and cultivated so that you can fulfill your purpose on this earth? What purpose? To produce fruit. Right? The grapevine serves only one purpose, to produce fruit, which means if it doesn't produce fruit or if it produces bad fruit, then all it is doing is wasting the time and effort and resources of the owner who has invested all of that into it. It's why Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. You can do nothing, he says. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, John 15, 5 through 8. That's it. That's it. That's what all of this is about you bearing fruit. Fruit that brings glory to God. That is the sole reason that you've been planted on this earth, given this life, and cared for and protected from the one who would seek to steal your soul. You understand your purpose for existing then isn't to make a name for yourself or to build a comfortable life for your family 
or to leave a legacy in your name or to build a successful career or to amass great wealth or to impress other people or any of the other things that so many of us actually live for. No, your sole purpose for existing is to produce spiritual fruit that brings glory to God. And of course, the Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That's nice, Paul, but to what end? So that Christians will be known as really nice people? No. Well, then what's the purpose of producing all that spiritual fruit? Look, it's to reflect Christ in us, which we're going to talk about in a moment, so that he will be seen and glorified in us, which, by the way, is how the early church was able to have so much influence in the world despite all the opposition it faced. It wasn't because they reflected a political party or a social movement or even a good moral value system. No, it's because they reflected Christ in them. They reflected Jesus in them, which enabled them to make disciples and spread his church around the known world at the time. Okay, listen, God has gone to great lengths to sustain your life on this earth for one purpose, which means if you're not producing any spiritual fruit in your life today, then you are decidedly not fulfilling your purpose in this life today. And in case you're wondering uh, whether or not you're actually producing spiritual fruit, listen, no one looks at a grapevine and wonders if it's producing grapes, right? Because the grapes are either hanging off of the branches or they're not. I have wild grapes that grow over the mountain laurel bushes in my yard. I don't even have to go outside to see when it's time. I just look out the window and these massive clusters of grapes are hanging off the vine and I know it's time to go out and gorge myself. I do it every year. It's obvious to everyone who sees the grapevine, whether or not it's producing fruit. I certainly don't have to tell you whether or not you're producing spiritual fruit in your life. You don't need me to tell you that because it's either there or it isn't, which should be obvious to you and everyone around you. So just remember, that's why you're here. This is your great purpose Every single moment of your life has been given to you by God for one reason and one reason only, to produce spiritual fruit that glorifies Him. And by the way, it's also fruit that is meant for others to consume, as we'll see as we continue. Let's keep reading verses 13 through 17. Then they sent to Him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Him in His talk. And they came to Him and said, Teacher... We know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're just buttering him up now. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Verse 13 says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, they being the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews that was made up of men from three Jewish groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, all three of which take turns questioning Jesus at points throughout this chapter along with the Herodians, which was a political party who were historically hated 
by the religious Jews because of their allegiance to the Herods, the vassal kings under the authority of the Romans, and yet they found a common enemy in Jesus, and thus they formed an uneasy alliance against him. And Mark tells us they came to trap him in his talk, and this is one of those many times where our English translations of the ancient biblical languages fall woefully short of the original meanings, because when Mark says they were trying to trap him in his talk, the word trap is the ancient Greek word agruo, which is a verb that literally means to take by hunting. So at this point, the religious Jews are literally hunting Jesus in order to kill him. And of course, they think they're going to do that by outsmarting him. And so they ask him a question regarding one of the most controversial issues of the day, whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar, because uh, basically every Jew in the first century hated paying taxes to their Roman oppressors. In fact, many of the Pharisees believed that it was actually immoral to pay any kind of tax to Rome. And yet... Caesar demanded the tax from the Jews, so they had no choice. Therein lay the trap for Jesus when they asked him if they should be paying taxes to Caesar, because if he said, yes, it is right to pay the tax, the people would turn against him. And yet if he said they should not pay the tax, then they can simply turn Jesus into the Roman authorities for rebellion against Caesar. And so Jesus, acutely aware of what they were trying to do, once again sees right through their plan and answers brilliantly by telling them to bring him a coin, a denarius. It was a small silver coin that represented an average day's wage for a worker in Israel, and which, more importantly, had the image of Tiberius. He was the Caesar who reigned after Augustus from AD 14 to uh, AD 37, and his face was stamped on the coin. And then Jesus asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? To which they reply, Caesar's. And because Roman law said that the coin belonged to Caesar because it bore his image, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, give to Caesar what bears Caesar's image and give to God what bears God's image. Well, what bears the image of God? We do. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Jesus was saying in no uncertain terms, give your taxes to Caesar because your money reflects Caesar's image and give yourself to God because you reflect God's image. The coin belongs to Caesar. You belong to God. In fact, twice in his letter to the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul says, you were bought with a price. Okay, God owns us which is why we bear the image of Christ in us. It's a powerful statement about God's image in you. Pastor and author John Piper says, Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he appoints for us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. You see, it's all about reflecting Christ in us, the one who owns us, which goes back to the parable that anchors this chapter, the parable of the vineyard, because the branches belong to the vine, just like the coin belonged to Caesar. In fact, 
Any branches that become separated from the vine are what? Jesus said they're gathered up and burned, as we read in John 15. And so as long as we, the branches, are attached to the vine, we belong to the vine, which means the spiritual fruit we produce in our lives does not belong to us because it doesn't come from us. It comes from the vine through us. Why? For the purpose of feeding others. You understand, the fruit isn't meant to build us up or to make us known. No, it's meant to build others up while making him known. That's why we're given the fruit we're given to begin with. And yet this is one of those fundamental errors that many believers make today. In fact, it's being taught in much of the church, this idea that we labor for Christ and out of that labor, fruit is produced through us, which that part's true. But then we view that fruit as God's blessings in our lives for us to consume because of our faithful labor. And so we consume the fruit feeding ourselves and our own identities instead of using that fruit to build others up and make his identity known. And so we have all these resources, all these blessings, these talents, and a fixed amount of time to use all of that to make him known to as many people as possible before our time on earth is over. And yet I think the vast majority of Christians end up consuming the vast majority of that fruit for ourselves. And maybe we give away what's left over after we've had our fill. But listen, the branches on the grapevine don't consume the grapes they produce. No, the branches get everything they need directly from the vine, which means the fruit that is being produced is for someone else. The fruit is there to feed those around the vineyard who are starving or dying of thirst. We don't produce the fruit for ourselves. No, we get everything we need from the vine, from Christ in us, who in turn produces spiritual fruit in our lives that feeds those around us and makes him famous in the process. So the fruit that Christ produces in your life out of your faithful labor for him is not for you to consume. It's for you to give away. In fact, it was never meant to feed you. It was meant to feed others. And so when we consume our own fruit, we're not only depriving others of what they need from us, but we're missing out on everything that we could and should be receiving directly from the vine, from Christ in us. So don't waste the resources he's given you. We only have a fixed amount of time on this earth. Don't waste it on yourself. Give it away. Give it all away. Give everything he's given you away and rely on the vine for what you need, not the fruit. That's what Jesus did. He got everything he needed from the Father. Everything else, he gave it away. Listen, that's how we reflect the image of Christ in us, by living like he lived, which means we don't sit around getting fat on the fruit that he produces in our lives. No, it means we give all that fruit away. That's how we influence the world around us, by reflecting Christ in us, which means living in a way that is contrary to the systems of this world, because the systems of this world are all by design set up for taking, not giving. And yet as products of the modern Western world, I think we're raised believing that the more we can consume, the more successful we are, right? While the kingdom of Christ says the more you give away, the more like Jesus you are. 
And since we belong to him, we're supposed to reflect him, not the world outside of him. And so, yes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you be sure to give to God what is God's. Let's finish the story for today, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. The seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so after Jesus soundly refutes the feeble arguments of the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sanhedrin sends in the Sadducees, another distinct sect of the religious Jews whose theological views were also very different, by the way, from uh, the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God, while the Sadducees believed that human history was solely determined by the unfettered free will of mankind apart from God. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons and their active participation in the affairs of men, while the Sadducees denied the existence of angels and demons altogether. The Pharisees believed that the Holy Scriptures, the canon of the Bible, included the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and also the writings of the prophets as we have them, and the wisdom literature as we have it after that, and so on. Basically, the entirety of the Old Testament as they had it, whereas the Sadducees only recognized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as the Word of God, which means anything after Deuteronomy was not considered God's Word for the Sadducees. And because they found no teaching in the Torah about life after death, whereas the prophets wrote much about life after death, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This was the basis for their trap for Jesus because according to the Leveret laws given to ancient Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, it was up to relatives to provide descendants for any man who died childless. So the Sadducees present Jesus with the hypothetical scenario involving those Leveret laws, knowing that he preached the resurrection from the dead, intending they were to discredit him. Because if the dead are indeed resurrected as Jesus believed, then how do you reconcile the marriage laws in Deuteronomy once you get to heaven if you were married to more than one person during your life on earth? And so they think they have Jesus right where they want him until he points out that the entire basis of their argument is flawed to begin with because they have no idea what the scriptures actually say. And look, I think it's easy for us today to talk about how ignorant and arrogant these religious Jews were. Except that so often we are the very same way. We take theological positions and religious stances and these perspectives on life and how we and everyone else should be living on it, living life based on 
uh, one line from one verse in one book of the Bible taken completely out of context, and yet we're ready to fight to the death over that position we've taken. I see it every single day from professing believers on social media. I'm telling you, I see it every single day. I have people who confront me personally about how we run this church or the ministries we've developed or participate in, people who want us to stop doing what we're doing or to at least stop doing it the way we're doing it, and they defend their positions vehemently based on arguments that are profoundly opposed to what Jesus taught and what the rest of the Bible actually says. It's exactly what the religious Jews were trying to do to Jesus. And so he makes a scathing statement about the importance of having God's word in you. Because otherwise, if all we do is learn a handful of powerful sounding one-liners from the Bible and then mix those bits of scripture with our own self-serving philosophies on life, we're no better off than the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes who appeared to be God's representatives on the earth when in reality they were wantonly further away from God than the prostitutes and thieves that Jesus hung out with. The Apostle Paul describes it candidly in his second letter to Timothy when he says, In the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, it sounds like he's describing the worst of the worst in society, the criminals, the addicts, the thieves, the pagans, the worldly people, until you finish reading his description of these very people in the very next verse, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. What? Paul wasn't talking about worldly people. He was talking about religious people. And he wasn't, by the way, talking about religious people then. He opens that statement within the last days. He's talking about religious people today. I read this quote to you recently by Andrew Womack. He said, one of the things I've learned is that many Christians never let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. As sad as that statement is, it's true. Because so many of us don't have God's word in us, which is why the church today is suffering from a profound identity crisis. We don't know what God's word says about who we are. And then we wonder why our spiritual lives are powerless. Powerless to affect real change in our own lives or anyone else's life for that matter. It's because we've forgotten what he's actually done to us that makes us uniquely equipped to affect that change in human lives, including our own. We failed to recognize whose image it is we bear as believers and followers of Christ. We've lost sight of the fact that we have Christ in us which should drive us deeper into his word. And listen, that's where you begin to not only recognize his image in you, but it's also his great purpose in your life comes to life in you. And once you begin to really see that in yourself, 
once you begin to see his image in you and, and this, this unbelievable purpose he created you for, look, that's when the systems of this world, and for that matter, everything else in this world begins to fade away because honestly, what else is there? What else could ever compare to the glory and purpose and power of the living Christ living inside of us? So listen, uh, if you're a Christian today, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, and yet your spiritual life seems flat, feeble, ineffective, look, it's not, it's not that you're lacking what you need. It's that you don't recognize what you already have. You see, it's not, a, it's not a poverty of gifts. It's an identity crisis. You simply don't understand who you are, what's been done to you, and what is actually inside of you, the, the profound purpose, the glory of His own image, and the power of His Word at work. It's all there. You simply have to take hold of it, what He's already given you, this gift that is Christ in us. Let's pray.